Hello and welcome to episode two of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host, Sam Nita, founder of British basketball website, hoopsfix.com and full-time British basketball advocate. Wow, it has been a while. I know I launched this podcast back in February and the original plan was to be very consistent with it and drop episodes every single month. But as it happens, real life took over. Um, I've been mad busy recently with loads of other stuff and it just hasn't happened. So this is me trying to make more of an effort to get back on it. Um, and in this episode, we have got a really interesting interview, actually, um, with the Chief Operations Officer of EuroLeague Basketball, Ed Scott, who also uh, happens to have been brought up in England. Um, he is half Scottish, half Catalan. Um, as you will find out in the interview, I mistakenly called him an Englishman. Um, and yeah, we talked everything ranging from uh, the EuroLeague's perception of, of the UK, uh, how they felt the EuroLeague Final Fours went. Um, and, and their hopes for sort of basketball in the UK in the future. So it's a really good interview. I think there's going to be a lot in there that is of value and of interest to many of you. Um, so yeah, have a listen. Let me know what you think. Uh, I'm always contactable on sam at hoopsfix.com. That is my personal email address. I always reply to everyone that hits me up. Sometimes it might take me a little while, but I will reply. Um, if not, you can get me on Twitter at hoopsfix or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash hoopsfix. Um, I'm always available. Make a point of making sure that I speak to whoever reaches out to me. So yeah, get in touch. And also, if you are liking this podcast, if you're rating what I do, please subscribe on YouTube. On YouTube? Not on YouTube. Please subscribe on iTunes. Um, so that you never miss an episode and also give us a cheeky five-star rating if you like it. Um, obviously, if you don't, then don't. Uh, be honest. Uh, and that would be great in helping me grow the audience uh, of this podcast for future episodes. So yeah, anyway, without further ado, here is me talking to the Chief Operations Officer of the EuroLeague, Ed Scott. Ed, thank you for joining us. It's been a long time coming. I've been trying to uh, get my hands on you and some time with you for a long time. And uh, it's great that we finally got you here. So can we start uh, just by, for people maybe that haven't heard of you before uh, or know who you are, explaining who you are, what your role is and what you do. Um, well, hello. It's, it's great to, uh, to touch base with you, Sam. And it's great to be on Hoops Fix, which is one of the brighter spots of British basketball in the last few years. So it's, it's my pleasure to, to spend some time with you and, and, and the people that will be listening. Thank you. Um, my name is Ed Scott. I'm currently the Chief Operations Officer at EuroLeague Basketball. Uh, EuroLeague Basketball, for those people that are not aware, uh, is the private company that runs the top two men's clubs competitions in Europe. So the EuroLeague, uh, currently title sponsored, so the T Turkish Airlines EuroLeague and the Euro Cup. Uh, we're a company based in Barcelona, in Spain, that have been in place since the year 2000 when the clubs, the top clubs and the top professional leagues at the time decided that it was the right time to separate from the traditional federation structure that was in place until then. And uh, as the Chief Operations Officer, I am working in the area that is more dedicated to the sports technical side of our activity. So everything to do with our competition, with uh, team registration, player registration, regulations, um, with our officiating, with our referees and observers, um, to do with our grassroots sort of youth programs, so our international junior tournament that we run, um, all of our EBI, Euroleague Basketball Institute activities, so the educational activities such as the Master in Sports Management and Marketing that we run uh, together with the University of Kafoskari in Venice, Italy, 
as well as uh, mastermind coaching seminars, opponent scouting systems. So everything pretty much on the sports side, mm-hmm. uh, which you could also say we're the people that only spend money. Um, we're not really a, a revenue generator within the company. And, and obviously the other uh, side of the company, which is, which is larger in terms of the number of people working in that area, is the sort of business development side. So everything to do with marketing, communication, events, web, etc. So that's the, the brief summary of, of where I am now. So let, let me ask you, because you know, I know it was, it was my initial reaction when I first you know, heard of you a couple of years back, was it, how does an Englishman get to be in this, this high power position within the EuroLeague? Like, what is your background and how did you get there? Um, I, I, I first have to make a small correction. I, I don't consider myself an Englishman. I, <laughs> I, uh, I have a British passport, so I'm a British national, but uh, my, my heritage is a bit mixed. So my father's Scottish and my mother's Catalan from Spain. Okay, so, okay. so for that reason, I prefer to tell people that I'm uh, half Scottish and half Catalan. But not, <laughs> not to offend any of the English people. But okay. So, as you can tell from the accent, I, I was born and brought up in, in England, in uh, Crawley in West Sussex. And... Um, Basically, over the years, I always had a keen interest in the sport. From a young age, visiting family in Spain, I was exposed to the sport uh, more so than perhaps your average British kid would be, and uh, really took a liking to it from a young age. So I started out playing at a very, very low level, for those people that have played with or against me before, <laughs> um, but soon realized that uh, suffering as a short, skinny white guy, I was never going to be any good. So I decided to get involved in coaching. Um, first of all, uh, take some courses, get some awards, visit some clinics, get, uh, buy some books, DVDs, etc. And um, so that was my first real, let's say, passion in the sport. And gradually getting involved also in officiating, table officiating, volunteering in you know, club management, uh, helping out in any way possible, um, initially at sort of school level, local league level then um, National League level, university in the UK. And so gradually, step by step, I was getting more and more involved in the sport. And um, after finishing university, where I actually studied electronic engineering. Where was that? Has, uh, I studied at University of Surrey in Guildford. Okay. But I was lucky enough that I was able to spend one year on study abroad at Mission State University in the US which exposed me to NCAA Division One BCS sport, which is um, worlds apart from even European pro sport, I'd, I'd say on, on some levels, in terms of the resources that these universities have. Uh, obviously the players are considered amateurs, and so they're not pay, uh, paid, but the coaching staff, the athletic administration around the players are, are very well remunerated in some cases and the resources that the teams have at their disposal so in terms of things like uh, arenas practice facilities uh, traveling conditions uh, practice conditions everything really is incredibly high level so um, through all of those different experiences when I finished university I decided that I would like to try and work in the field that was my passion so basketball primarily and I've been lucky enough that ever since then, um, I've been involved in the sport, originally at England Basketball up in Sheffield, then back at Michigan State University with the women's team, and uh, more recently at Eurolyc Basketball, where I, where I still am today. So what, so what was your progression when you graduated? Because you were a video, were you a video coordinator with Michigan State for a while, is that right? 
That's correct. So my, my first job out of university in, in basketball was as the membership officer at England Basketball. Right. So uh, Keith Mayer and the staff at England Basketball were kind enough to offer me an opportunity to work with them back in the summer of 2004. And so it was a relatively short-lived experience, but a, but a very interesting one, uh, working up in Sheffield. And also that was the summer that England Basketball hosted the under-16 boys Division B tournament down in uh, Burgess Hill, where um, Matthew Bryan-Amening, Dan Clark were playing on the England team, and, and so it was the, the biggest uh, international basketball event held in, in literally decades in the UK, and, and so it was uh, quite an experience, yeah. but, 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 a great, uh, but a great experience all round. And then from there, I went back to the US when an opportunity came, like you said, to be the video coordinator for the women's team. So again, for, for people that are not so familiar, you know, in... At, at schools like Michigan State, which is one of the biggest in the U.S., on the women's program, they have four full-time coaches, so one head coach, three assistant coaches. And then the fifth member of the coaching staff is a full-time video coordinator. So working exclusively, breaking down video of opponents, uh, self-scout games, practice, um, high school recruits, etc. So that was a, an incredible experience that I had for, for a couple of years. And then when I came back to Europe, I was um, looking for uh, a new project a new challenge and I was lucky enough to get an opportunity to join EuroLeague Basketball in autumn 2006 wow. originally as a junior member in the operations area and I've been very lucky that over the last uh, almost seven years now I've, I've been gradually able to take on some new projects and some different responsibilities on the way uh, until today. So your progression has been pretty quick in reality you know if you, you come out of university two years and then you're in the EuroLeague and then from there also six, seven years in the EuroLeague and, and now you're the Chief Operations Officer. Uh, I, I've been very lucky. So in, in, in life, I think uh, there are many, many good people who uh, don't have doors open for them for different reasons. And uh, I don't consider myself a good person, but I, <laughs> I, I, tr I try to work hard and I try to do the right thing as much as possible. And I've been fortunate that uh, since arriving at, at EuroLeague Basketball, uh, let's say different things have occurred internally between the, the sort of natural expansion of the company in the first few years, uh, between one or two people changing roles or, or, or leaving the organization. Um, and so through different, for different reasons, I've, I've been able to, as I said, you know, um, let's say step through doors that have opened up along the way. And, and, and it really has been um, a, a wonderful experience to date. So, so what has been your progression? So, you know, I just want to look at it from the standpoint of if I'm a, if I'm a someone from the UK and, and I, maybe I want to work in the position that you're in or work my way into the Euroleague. Like, how did they, how did they first find out about you in the first place? Um, and, and then, what has been your the different roles that you've had within the Euroleague up until this point? Um, how I joined was, as a lot of things in life, you know, uh, had had a small element of luck. When I came back to Europe. I uh, was interested in, in getting a job in basketball. I was living with my parents at the time who uh, live about an hour south of Barcelona, so I was in Spain. And so I uh, sent my CV to a couple of different organizations, uh, such as uh, you know, FIBA Europe, EuroLeague Basketball, uh, so some of the basketball organizations uh, in Europe. I was obviously, let's say, upwardly mobile and flexible, having no uh, commitment, so the, the, the willingness and the ability to, to go wherever to do whatever job. Um, I'm also quite fortunate in that because of my background, I, I was brought up speaking a few different languages. 
and along the way have also picked up uh, one or two more uh, here and there, uh, which obviously helps a great deal in, in an international organization like uh, Euroleague Basketball. And um, they, had my, they had my CV and, and uh, a, a job came up. And uh, at the time, um, Alan Richardson was the uh, technical director of Euroleague Basketball. So he was uh, visiting Barcelona every now and then uh, with his role. And so uh, I was in touch with him and, uh, and I saw him one day after there was a, a game in Barcelona for the very first year that the NBA Europe Live initiative took place. I was in Barcelona because I was uh, working and helping out at the launch of uh, an EA Sports activation. So just different things that I'd volunteered and helped out uh, here and there had, had led to being able to do this for a couple of days. And so I found myself in the arena and in Barcelona um, right at the same time that they were going through the interview process for, for this particular role. So it was a bit of um, fortunate timing and um, as well as, let's say, the, the, the background more or less fitting the, the right role. But it's, it's one of these things where it's, I think it's, it's, it's easy to give uh, generic advice. It's, it's very difficult to give specific advice because... The reality is that, that basketball or, or, or sports, let's say management itself, is a very, very competitive industry because there's very, very few jobs. And, and, and you know, in, in most of those jobs, there's very little money. So um, I, I think it's very, very different to traditional fields like teaching or uh, accountancy or, um, or, or medicine, you know, roles, let's say, that, that have... Um, some very, very defined career paths to follow. In, in sports, you really come across some people that have some very, very, very background. So some people get their foot in the door, you know, through being the relative or the friend of someone, and then over time, you know, build up their experience and their knowledge. Uh, some people put in the hard graft for many years, and like I said before, for, for whatever reason, uh, don't ever get the opportunities that they'd like or they'd hope for. Um, with, with, with my background being primarily in coaching the sport, you know, that's also an area, and, and the UK I think is a prime example, where you know, the, some of the best coaches in the UK are the people that for the last 20, 30, 40 years have been coaching in their city, in their community, um, have been doing it on a either pure volunteer basis or you know, mostly volunteer basis. And, and so you know, they're not necessarily recognised as being the best coaches in the country, um, but the people that really know uh, know who they are and, and know their value, know their quality. So it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a tricky industry in, in that respect. How much do you uh, do you keep on top of uh, British basketball and English basketball and what's going on over here in the UK? Um, I, I try to stay in touch with people and I, I try to stay informed. Um, I visit hoopsfix.com every day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, um, obviously the, the, the basketball community in the UK is not too large. Yeah. So it's, it's easy to generally keep uh, a finger on the pulse of what's happening. It's, it's fair to say that I've not lived in the UK for uh, nine years now. And so inevitably you do lose a bit of track with different things. But, you know, I was, I was lucky enough last summer to, to come back and help out for a couple of months with the Olympic Games. So, you know, things like that always help uh, to, 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 to stay in touch and, and see, see how things are developing. Um, but, you know, it's... Uh, like I said, probably not as uh, not as in touch as I used to be. How was the Olympics? What, what were you doing at the Olympics? I remember seeing you seeing you around, doing your thing with walkie talkies and everything else. 
Well, I, I was lucky enough that for the Olympic Games, uh, for the sport of basketball, uh, like other sports, other disciplines in the Olympic program, they had a sort of full-time staff. So there were three people that were running the Olympic uh, basketball and, and the Paralympic wheelchair basketball from, in the case of Joe Sutherland, uh, four years out, and, and in the case of uh, Shane Gordon and, and Helen Caswell, uh, sort of 18 months out. And, and so they were the, the full-time people working for the Yellow Sea for, for LOCOG to, to coordinate everything around uh, basketball and wheelchair basketball. And then for the summer itself, uh, sort of immediately before and during both the Olympic and Paralympic Games, there was a group of another nine of us who helped out for both and came in for between a couple of months and sort of three, four, five months to help out in different areas. So I, I was lucky enough that I was able to, on the one hand, get some time off from, from uh, Euroleague Basketball to come over. And on the other hand, that, that Joe and the rest of the people at LOCOG were, were uh, willing uh, to, to have me join the team and, and help out um, in, in my specific case in uh, in the case of technical officials, so all of the um, referees, commissioners, supervisors, table officials, statisticians, uh, judges that were around the event and, and also helping out a bit on, on field of play, which field of play is the IOC uh, abbreviation or wording used for where the actual sport, where the actual competition takes place. So in the case of basketball, obviously the court itself and, and, and everything around it to, to try and ensure that the games themselves are running smoothly. Um, and the competition went without a, any hitches. And, and, it, and it did? Were there any problems? Uh, there were no serious problems. Like always, there are things that happen behind the scenes that <laughs> the general public, the, the media, the fans uh, never find out. Some of those will stay that way <laughs> for, the, for the sake of, uh, of, of memories and, and, and other things, you know, a, a, a minor anecdote. So, you know, we, we had a test event 12 months earlier, so the London Prepares uh, National Team Friendly Tournament in August 2011, which was the first ever uh, competition event on the Olympic Park. And in the very first game, if I'm not mistaken, uh, China were playing Australia. And at the time when they were supposed to play the national anthems, instead of the Chinese national anthem, the Chilean national anthem was played, which is you know the next one up in the, in the alphabet. And obviously, you know, if that had happened, for example, to the Aussies that were in the same game, they would have laughed and shrugged it off and it wouldn't have been a big deal. Because it was the Chinese, obviously they're a little bit more sensitive about these type of um, diplomatic uh, mistakes. So that caused uh, a bit of a, a snowball effect. But, you know, the, at the end of the day, these are all anecdotes which, uh, you know, are good that they happen before the, the main event so that you can iron out all the kinks and, and get things up and running. So let's just jump, let's jump back to the EuroLeague stuff. Um... You know, I guess what what I would want to ask from to someone like yourself that's on the inside, what, what is the Euroleague's perception of, of British basketball, the professional league over here in the UK? Like, you know, we know that that you guys want a London-based franchise or a UK-based franchise. Uh, you know, you, we know you've been doing a lot to try and help the sport grow over here. Like, how is it perceived within your organisation? Um, well, it's something that's always been important. So. Yuri Boss was created in the year 2000, and for those people that have been around the game long enough, they'll remember that in the first two years of the Euroleague, uh, the London Towers, playing out of Crystal Palace, um, with the support of Haribo, with the support of Kinder, uh, Rick Taylor was uh, general manager at the time, um, you know, uh, Nick Nurse coaching, so 
the Euroleague invited in those first two seasons, you know, a UK-based team because, you know, obviously the, the UK market since day one for, the, for Euroleague basketball has been a priority. Um, obviously, the, the sports experience, let's say that the London Towers had in those first two years was, you know, um, almost last place the first year and, and last place the second year because the reality is that, you know, the, the competitiveness of the squad that they could put together compared to the other teams playing in the competition, you know, was not quite at the same level. Uh, you know, the same probably goes for the facilities if we, if we compare, you know, Crystal Palace with some of the other facilities around Europe where Euroleague teams are playing out of. But, you know, it was a, a, an attempt, it was uh, an intention, or let's say sign of intention. And uh, since then, there hasn't been a team in the Euroleague competition. In 2003-04, you know, the Brighton Bears had one season in the ULEV Cup in the second competition, it's now called the Euro Cup. In 2007-08, uh, the Guildford Heat, you know, now the, the, the Surrey Heat, um, also played one year in the competition. So there have been small attempts on those lines, but you know, I think the reality is obviously that it's important not to rush these things and not to push a team that financially uh, or business-wise is not quite ready to play in Europe, to, to do that before they're ready. Um, one of the development needs for that to happen as well is facilities in the UK. So, as different people around the sport have mentioned, you know there are a lot of great facilities in the UK for basketball right now that are very expensive for BBL clubs to use. So, the challenge is not so much that the facilities don't exist. The challenge is having the economy so that basketball clubs can be inside and using on a frequent basis those facilities. And so, until that happens, you know. Uh, and or until more clubs have, um, let's say, decent-sized and, and decent availability facilities, such as, you know, London Lions moving into the Copper Box this season, um, and, you know, some of the different projects, you know, Manchester obviously have their own facility, but it's reasonably small at the moment, so that the new facility that they're looking to move into, um, you know, different projects that are in Bristol or that, that are, you know, up and running in, in, in Newcastle in terms of the university facilities, so... There's, there's obviously different um, lights at the end of the tunnel, and, and some of those are, you know, the, the tunnel is very short, some of them it's a bit longer. But um, c- coming back to how Euroleague basketball sees the UK and, and, and basketball in the UK, it goes without saying that the UK, when you talk about business, when you talk about finance, is, you know, one of the top three markets in, in Europe. So Germany, uh, France, the UK are the top three markets in terms of uh, many different indicators when it comes to sport. There's... There's no surprise that, you know, football in Europe has a greater tradition, has a greater following than basketball, and, and it's not realistic short or midterm to expect or to think that that would change. But it's also no coincidence that the top five leagues in, in Europe, when it comes to football, are the UK, France, uh, Germany, uh, Italy and Spain. And so, you know, pretty much uh, almost without exception, the, the top five economies in Europe. And in basketball, that's not the case. So the top leagues in Europe and the top countries in, in, in basketball are generally in southern and eastern European countries. And so that's why countries like Germany or France, who are definitely quite ahead you know, on the curve compared to the UK when it comes to, to basketball, um, but are also you know, still behind some of the other eastern and southern European countries, um, that the UK needs to, basketball in the UK needs to grow and Euroleague basketball are interested in trying to help that, uh, obviously in different ways. And obviously it's not possible to come in and to change anything from, from 
uh, overnight, nor do we have the resources to be able to do that ourselves directly. So we're, we're trying to help with different things. So bringing the final four last season was one of those. Um, we're, we're, we're looking at you know different things for the future that in the short term probably won't include a final four, but you know in the, in the midterm, we'd like to see that again. We'd like to see British clubs participating you know, in the short term in the Euro Cup competition and in the midterm in the EuroLeague competition. We think that's realistic you know, uh, uh, you know, some, sometime down the road. And um, obviously, you know, we don't have a direct impact on things like national team programs or you know, federation setup and structures. But uh, if there's anything we can help indirectly uh, that can help the sport in the UK grow, then, then we think that's a benefit to everybody around the sport, both in the UK and outside. How much, uh, like, how much communication do you have with EBGB, the BBL? Like, is it an ongoing dialogue? Do you speak to them regularly, or, or you know, is it a kind of once in a blue moon type thing? Um, it's it, it's regular, but but obviously it's nowhere near as frequent as it would be with other leagues or federations in in countries where. Um, Basketball is, is more active either because, you know, we have a club or clubs in our competitions um, and or, you know, th- there are clubs knocking on the door to, to play in our competition. So it wouldn't be accurate to say that we have very frequent contact with those organisations. But, you know, we are in touch with uh, British basketball, with England basketball, with the BBL um, and, and with other, let's say, stakeholders around the sport, because uh, as well as the traditional organisations, it's, it's also important that, um, you know the government organisations that you know trade and industry, that the private companies, that uh, sports marketing agencies, that um, potential host broadcasters, media partners, uh, traditional media, new media, uh, potential investors. Uh, so th- there are lots of different groups or people that we are in touch with on a on a more or less frequent basis. Like I said, trying to help put the dots together. Um, Again, you know, starting from, from, from the basis that where we are based and, and what our you know, day-to-day activity is, you know, by no means can we, um, can we have massive direct impact, but can, can try to help the existing basketball organisations you know, in, in, in different areas here and there. You mentioned it slightly there, and it's definitely a topic that I wanted to talk about, and it's an obvious one. EuroLeague Final Fours um, in London, like, what was your perception of it? How did you feel that it went? Um, I think overall we had a very positive experience. So it, it goes without saying that, um, like everything in life and like any event, there were things that uh, could be improved for the future. And so they're all different learning points that we took away and that we will take on board both for upcoming events in, in different cities and different countries. Can you give us some examples of those? Um, well, in the case of the UK, you know, things that we knew going in were going to be tough but that you know, proved to be that way were things like, for example, the you know, mainstream media interest in the yeah. event. So again, you know, we knew there was no way that, you know, to give one example, the BBC, um, who don't generally carry a lot of basketball coverage, yeah. there was no way that they were going to suddenly turn around and overnight you know, for, for the four days that the event was on, were suddenly going to dedicate lots of coverage, um, you know, uh, show clips in their... You know, BBC Sport and and, and in uh, news programs and so on, um, when they you know don't have a history, don't have a background of doing that, um, so therefore when you know 
they, 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 sure enough, they, they didn't really uh, show a great deal of interest in the event. Uh, and in covering it, you know, you, you have to come away with, with a bit of frustration. You have to come away with the feeling that you'd like that to change in the future. If you come away thinking, well, you know, that's just how it is and it's always been that way and it's never going to change, then quite frankly, you, you have to question and ask yourself, well, you know, why are you working in this field? Why, why are you coming, you know, in the case of the, the event, why are you bring it to the UK? If you're not going to try and, and change that. So, you know, that's probably one of the areas where um, we felt as if, you know, we, we definitely in the future need to keep working and it's, it's, it's a work in progress and, and it's step by step um, for, for things like that to change. Um, you know, uh, one of the other areas where we also, um, you know, were looking to see uh, if we can improve in the future is uh, the local ticket sales. So, you know, ticket sales in the UK were good but uh, perhaps could have been slightly better. And so, you know, again, we have to go away and, and we've already done you know, the exercise of, of analyzing you know, different things that, that we can change and we can improve in the future when hopefully, like I said, you know, in, in a few years time, we can come back to London and, and to the O2, which is an incredible facility, um, incredible city, obviously an incredible market with the event and, and, you know, and improve on the things that didn't go quite as, as, as well as we planned. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's the reality. But at the same time, you know, that I think there, there were a lot of things that we were very happy with. So the fan zone that took place in Trafalgar Square, you know, we were told that the, the structure that we put up um, to cover the main court in Trafalgar Square that was there from Friday to Sunday that weekend was the biggest ever structure that, that had been put in place in Trafalgar Square. And, you know, obviously we're not out to, to break Guinness records, <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the impact and the footfall and, and the interest for the marketing partners that are around the event and, and, and you know, people that live or, or work in the UK and, and, you know, perhaps cross Trafalgar Square on their daily, you know, daily business or daily, you know, study routine. And perhaps I'm not so familiar with basketball that they can walk through, that they can, you know, be exposed to the sport, that they can, you know, try their hand, at, 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 whether it's watching, whether it's, you know, shooting the basketball, whether it's, Mm. You know, any other sort of interactive event, you know, we, we were in, incredibly happy with that um, and how that went. That was the first time we'd ever helped really a, a, a serious sort of full-on fan zone. And, and so, like I said, you know, there's, there's different things that we were uh, more happy with and, and different things that we were less happy with. So that's, you know, it's, it's, it's things to take away from the event. One of the things that, that was constantly brought up by fans on my Facebook and on Twitter and everywhere else um, was the ticketing, uh, pricing and packages. Um, a lot of people felt it was expensive. And also, well, you know, looking at it from, from my standpoint, I felt that because because it was sold as group, uh, like you were buying a, you know, a group, like a rather than just individual games, you were buying two games, three games, four games, whatever it was. Then as a result of that, the fans of those certain teams would only show up for one game and it resulted in a lot of empty seats. Why was it that the ticketing was decided to, to go like that? Um, I'll, I'll answer in the opposite direction if that's okay, just because the, the, the second one's quicker. Um, yeah. Since the Final Four uh, has been in place within Euroleague Basketball, which was uh, 2002 in, in Bologna and Italy, the ticketing since then to date has always been a single event ticket as opposed to individual game tickets. Okay. And so for that reason, uh, it's always been packaged that way. We've debated internally on, on, on different occasions the different advantages and disadvantages of individually selling the games. Uh, but there's, there's a number of reasons why we haven't changed that um, until now. Um, 
One of them is that you know we, we very much see it as a single event as opposed to four separate games. Um, another is to do with um, security uh, in terms of you know separating uh, fan groups and, and making the experience um, as best as possible for, for, for all the fans that are attending. Um, another is the timing of the games. So if you sell tic- uh, tickets separately, you have to enter the entire arena and then uh, bring people back in for the second game. You know, it wouldn't be possible to have the games as close together as they are now if we were to do that, etc., uh, etc. Et so for that reason, we never have. And to be honest, at the moment, we're still not in a position where we're debating to change that right now. In the future, perhaps, who knows? Um, going back to the pricing standpoint, you know, that's one of the, the things that we've taken away, that the average ticket price for the Final Four has you know, gradually been increasing from 2002 until now based on demand, you know, based on the quality of the event, based on a number of different factors. You know, the city of London is, is not a, a cheap city. So the price of the ticket, you know, also factors in things like the, you know, the, the catering costs, travel costs, etc. you know, that, that are around the event, accommodation costs, you know, in, in, in London. Um, but, you know, it's, it's one of the feedbacks that we've taken back from fans, from, from consumers, from customers, and that we're going to look at, you know, starting next year in, in Milan, in Italy. And again, you know, uh, the next time that we come back to London, it will definitely be something that we will uh, look to see if it can be done differently and, uh, and made more affordable for fans for that reason. So like you said, you're going to Milan next year. There was an option to pick up a second year in London, which obviously you chose not to. Um, what was the ultimate sort of deciding factor that, that made you not come back here this, next year? Um I wouldn't say there was one key factor. You know, it's always weighing up the the accumulated global situation. So there there were a number of different things where we felt that the timing. So we've been thinking about you know coming to London ever since back in two thousand seven. The O2 Arena was open. Uh, we have a good relationship with AEG, the, the company that own and operate the facility. And so for several years we we had this in the back of our mind, and and we decided in in two thousand twelve before the Olympic Games that it would probably be good timing to try to uh, continue the sort of momentum, the legacy, you know, the buzzword that everyone loves and, and is talking about at the moment, you know, one year on, uh, from the Olympic and Paralympic Games in London. And so we thought that perhaps uh, May 2013 would, would be the best timing for that reason. So uh, that was why we, we made the initial decision. Um, we felt as if a, a sort of, you know, option to come back for a second year running was important to have as well. Because if, if that momentum was really in place, then it would be good to, to, to keep that going and to continue that for the following year. And, and I think the global experience and the global evaluation was that whilst there's some things that had improved or changed were, you know, surrounding basketball in the UK and, and an event like the Final Four, um, it was the market, you know, the, the people, the media, uh, you know, everything around it is probably not quite at the maturity point where it made sense to have the event back a second year running. And so the intention is still to bring the event back to the city, to the facility in the future. We probably think that it's, it's better for everyone involved if we wait a few years before repeating the experience. Um, and we think that the overall result then will be better. And obviously we're very lucky that you know we had alternative options and, and ended up choosing to, to go to Milan, to Italy, to a, 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 an incredible city and, and to a country that where the final four hasn't been for for the last twelve years, and which you know is still a, a very important country for basketball in, in Europe. 
How do you feel about um, the EuroLeague standing amongst um, British basketball fans? Like, you know, from where I'm, from where I come from, like, it seems like a lot of the, especially the younger players that I talk to, they could tell me everything about the NBA, the stars, and everything else. But it always seems like the EuroLeague uh, hasn't quite penetrated um, their minds in the same way. Like, what's your take on that? Um, I think it's, it's definitely accurate in terms of describing the situation today, right now. Um, I think the the challenge is uh, historical. So the NBA, you know, has been around since 1946, and, and for many years has been on TV, you know, in people's minds, on, on in the media in, in the UK, and in more recent years, you know, people having people like you know Luol Deng, um, John Amici back in the day, um, you know, Steve Bucknell a few years before that, more recently Joel Freeland. Uh, you know, Bobby Archibald, etc. So there's there's obviously been a lot of UK players that have been in the NBA over the last few years, and that's definitely helped with the interest. You know, the NBA have also, also done a good job of bringing teams, especially in the sort of 90s, over to the UK to play games, and, and since the O2, um, and, and Manchester, you know, the, the last couple of years too, have been, you know, in place as far as facilities go. They've also brought teams and, and individual people around. Um, you know, there's there's lots of reasons why the NBA for many years now has had a lot of traction in the UK amongst whether it's basketball players, whether it's basketball fans, whether it's the media. And and that's something that, you know, the EuroLeague as a competition uh, has only been managed by, by this organisation since the year 2000. You know, as I said, only two, for only two years has there been a, a British team playing in the competition. Um and, and the biggest difference probably is that those British players that have played in, are playing in, or been successful in, in European competition, you know, really don't get the following or the interest in the UK that, you know, perhaps we'd uh, like them to in the future. And that, you know, is, is one of the things that we're working on. So there are British players such as Joel Freeland, you know, who had a career for, you know, about six, seven years, in, uh, a high-level career for, for well, perhaps a bit less than that, but, you know, five, six years here in Europe before making the jump to the NBA. And, you know, his last year in Europe, he was, you know, one of the top big men in European basketball. But that didn't really, let's say, translate into the UK media or into the UK uh, basketball community, you know, because, you know, the Euroleague competition is not really followed so much, you know, whether it's through TV, whether it's through Euroleague TV, so the, the online uh, Euroleague platform that ironically is now uh, run out of uh, London, run out of Performs headquarters. Um and so, you know, commentated by, you know, UK-based uh, individuals, um, whether it's, you know, that the uh, mainstream media don't really, you know, don't really follow them, pay too, too much attention. Um, you know, Dan Clark for many years has, has played at high level uh, in Europe. Bobby Archibald, like I said, you know, had a very brief stint in the NBA, but the majority of his career uh, has been in, in Europe and in some pretty, you know, top-level programs. Steve Bucknell was another example. So he played, you know, for a couple of years in the NBA, but most of his career was, you know, again, high-level teams uh, in different countries here in Europe. So, and as time goes on, you know, I think there's going to be more and more British kids that either come out of the UK young and come to Europe, like Dan Clark, that go through the US college system and then come back to uh, to play in Europe, uh, that try the NBA for a year or two, like like Bucknell or, or, or Archibald did, and, and then come and play in Europe. And, and really, you know, I think it's, it's a combination of things that, that, you know, will increase the... The, the knowledge of British players, of British fans, that, you know, that there are high-level British players playing in Europe, that it's a, you know, it's, a, it's a quality alternative career route 
So that's something else that I think, you know, there'll be many kids that have gone and played high school, JUCO, you know, low level, you know, college basketball in the US, you know, and have come back the same or worse as when they left because they've gone to the wrong program, you know, and it's just people looking west, looking to the US because that's what's, you know, more common or more comfortable. And, you know, perhaps they should be thinking, well, you know, I should look east and I should, you know, like Joel Freeland did, you know, go to Gran Canaria at a young age, like Dan Clark did, you know, go to Estudiantes in Madrid at a young age, you know, Devon Van Ostrom, you know, there's, so there's, there's, there's lots of, I think, good examples of young players that, you know, can, can go a different route and, and it can actually be more beneficial for their career. So, you know, so I think, again, there's, there's a few different factors, but uh, it's obviously something that we're interested in increasing the knowledge that people in the UK have about European competition in general and obviously as far as we're concerned, you know, the, the Euro League and Euro Cup competitions. What can, what can be done to, uh, to make the media take notice? Like, it's been a recurring theme, you know, over the past few years, even when we've had teams that are, that are good, and like GB teams that are good and performing well, that the mainstream media just doesn't pick it up. And obviously, you know, you, you had that experience with EuroLeague Final Fours. Like, what can be done to change that? I think that's the million-dollar question, Sam. Yeah. Um, you know, Luol Deng, you know, I, 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 I love, you know, comments like, you know, Luol Deng is, is basically the highest-paid British athlete who can walk down virtually any high street in the UK and, and no one even bats an eyelid at him. And, you know, when Lord Degen does the same thing in Chicago, you know, he gets stopped left, right and centre and asks for photographs, for autographs, you know, he gets, you know, high fives and, you know, and, and told things. So that, that's the reality of where, you know, basketball is right now in the UK. Um, and, you know, again, there's many, many reasons what in the, for things that have gone on or haven't gone on in the past that caused that to be the case today. Um, I think it's the million dollar question. If I had the answer, I, I wouldn't be sat here. <laughs> I'd be uh, on some Caribbean island, you know, sipping uh, some, some soft drinks right now. But the the key probably is that it, it needs to connect um, with important decision makers within the UK. So, you know, we have a, a, a chicken and the egg situation in the UK with basketball. So, it, you know, you know it better than anyone else. The people listening know it better than anyone else. You know, if you have, you know, currently a, a, a high-level team like, like Team GB that are not able to, you know, win medals or play at a high level, then, you know, they're not in the media as much. So, you know, people aren't watching basketball. People aren't watching basketball, so audience figures are slightly lower, participation rates are lower, then, you know, you don't have so much government funding. If you don't have so much government funding, you know, it's, it's also more difficult to attract sponsors because they can see that the sport's not quite growing. If you don't have resources, you know, you can't, either investing for new facilities. You know, the sport in the UK has to be an indoor sport. You know, it doesn't have the advantage in, in southern European countries that it can be played outdoors year-round. So, you know, it's expensive and, you know, it's it's cheaper for any leisure centre to hire, you know, four badminton courts for an hour to some, you know, old fogies, if you excuse my French, then, you know, then hire it for an hour to, to a youth basketball team that want to practice. You know, if players aren't practising, they're not getting better. You know, and, and so they're practicing once a week, maybe, if, if that. And, you know, players aren't going to reach a high level if that happens. You know, we don't have the resources to get our coaches, you know, really qualified up to a, a high level. So, if, you know, the coaches are still volunteers or, you know, people's parents, then, you know, they're not helping the kids to grow and develop. You know, so the kids that are coming up and that are playing eventually in the BBL or in EBL Division One and so on are not quite at the same level as they're, you know, the equivalent in, in other countries, whether it's in Europe and the US and so on. And, you know, you can't, so therefore the players available for the national team selection are not so good, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's this continuous circle, which, like I said, everyone involved in the sport knows that that's the case. And like I said, it's, it's very difficult to, to, to put your finger on, you know, the, the game changer. But, you know, I think, like I said, it's, it's key decision makers or key influence, you know, uh, 
people around that circle that, that need to, you know, let's say step up or they need to be convinced or buy into basketball. And then that will have a snowball effect around the circle to, to other things. So, you know, there continues to be a massive amount of potential. So, you know, the demographics of the UK is, is, you know, is, is incredible in terms of the athletic bodies. Um, the interest in the sport through things like the NBA is high. Um, you know, the, the facilities, like I said, the high level exist. The resources as a country exist, but obviously those resources are not necessarily in the sport of basketball. So, you know, so there's a lot of things that are, that are ready, but, you know, there's a few things that need to, to change, let's say, to, to be harmonised and to really uh, meet, you know, what for, for decades has been a buzzword. You know, we talk about legacy, like, around the Olympics and Paralympics, you know. Potential is, is the buzzword that's been around basketball for decades. One question that I've always wanted to know, maybe just out of personal interest, but um, your your online streaming platform now it's live basketball.tv, right? What percentage of your subscribers and, and your viewers there are, are UK based? Do you That's know? That's an excellent question, which I have absolutely no idea what the answer <laughs> is. Um, it's it's better than you'd expect. Yeah. So I know that the percentage of UK based subscribers is higher than a lot of European countries where basketball is popular. Really. Obviously, on the one hand, that's because in those basketball countries, you know, you have basketball on satellite TV or, you know, free TV. Of course, yeah. And in the UK, it's, it's obviously, you know, tougher to, to, to watch the competition um, on, on a traditional you know, TV screen. Um, so, like I said, I honestly don't know the number. I, I'd have to look and, and get back to you. But, like I said, the percentage is, is actually higher than you think. But, like anything, you know, we, we, we'd like for it to be higher. You know, we, we'd hope that more people, you know, sign up and, and watch it, you know. Live Basketball TV now is, is the sort of all-encompassing platform that offers FIBA, uh, FIBA Zones, you know, EuroLeague, another sort of, you know, 12 national leagues around the world, you know, the Australian League, the Filipino League, you know, different top European leagues as well. So it, it really is a sort of one-stop shop for, for high-level basketball and, and is, in our opinion, you know, really quite affordable for people to sign up. Did, did you see the BBL just launched its own platform? Did you see that? Yes, we, we we saw the news, and you know we think that's that's great because obviously the the um, production costs around broadcasting TV, you know, or high definition high definition TV um, is not cheap, and so for for the BBL at the moment, you know, that that's let's say perhaps not realistic to immediately implement across the league, and so it's definitely a great initiative that they're kicking off and having their own uh, you know live basketball platform with weekly games. That will be you know shown from from different clubs around the country, because you know uh, it goes without saying that, that new media live streaming and so on you know is, is definitely the future, um, and is is obviously much easier and much more affordable you know both for the rights holder in this case the BBL, as well as for fans to, to sign up and watch. Do you think the BBL is something that you would ever cut um, carry on live basketball TV? Um, well, live basketball TV is a joint initiative. Right. So it's a joint initiative between Perform, the, the UK-based company, yeah. um, that let's say have the, the, the logistics or the hardware behind it, um, Euroleague Basketball, and, and FIBA, uh, based over in Switzerland. So it's 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 a it's a joint initiative between these three organisations, and and I honestly don't see the reason why the BBL in the future couldn't be added uh, to that platform. But um, uh, it's also something that I'm not uh, directly involved in, so I, I also can't give you my my personal commitment, let's say. One other thing that I wanted to bring up about live basketball TV whilst we're on the topic, um, and a few of my friends have commented on this as well, and, and I feel it personally, is that the production values, I find that a lot of the replay angles, they're so close up or they tend to miss the action. And it's exactly the same with uh, 
with FIBA as well. Like I've been watching some Afro Basket, and there'll be a play, and then they go straight to the replay, and the replay will almost miss the block shot or the dunk or whatever it is. Like, is that something that you're aware of and you're kind of like trying to sort out? Uh, yeah, it's 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 a challenge. I mean, the 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 replay. So let's say the, the editorial decisions behind how a game is is broadcast is produced on TV is down to the producer that's inside the OB van, the, the outside broadcast van, that's you know outside the arena, in each individual arena that's take, you know where a game is taking place. So yeah. that means that you know for the Afro basket, you know you might have an, an you know Angolan person or a, uh, you know Nigerian or whomever. It's in the OB fans controlling that. For Euroleague games, you know, you have a different individual in each country, in each, in each uh, outside each arena. And so inevitably, because there's a sort of artistic element, you know, there's always going to be a bit of difference, both in, in quality and, and in style and criteria from one game to the next, even if it's in the same competition uh, or even in the same country. You know, from one week to the next, it might be a different producer. So the same game in the same arena might be produced slightly different. Um, you know, we have something similar to, to, to FIBA, to the NBA, where we have, you know, a broadcasting manual. So we set some, some minimum standards and try and get unified criteria across the board. Uh, but it is, it is work in progress that, you know, you, you have everybody understand uh, what it is you'd like to do. And it's something that, for example, you know, UEFA for Champions League competition, you know, they're lucky enough that they have the resources where they have a group of people that travel to each individual game. Uh, okay. And one of the things that they control is just that. So the production criteria standards yeah. at those games, you know, we're not in a position where resource-wise we can do that. So we rely on our host broadcasters. And it's the same for FIBA, for FIBA Europe, for FIBA Africa and so on. And so for that reason, you know, you get a bit more variety. But, you know, but like you said, anything that's, uh, you know, uh, positive feedback, whether it's, you know, uh Self, you know, self-criticism that, that we ourselves have identified, or something that fans pick up on. You know, we're we're constantly trying to improve those things uh, over time. I'm aware we're running running on a little bit, so I'll start to kind of wrap it up. But um, one more thing I just wanted to ask about was kind of like the future now. So obviously, you're going into this season. What are your hopes for the Euro League this coming season, and 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 sort of what what can fans expect? Well. Um, we, it's the second season that the Euroleague competition will have its current uh, competition system. So the number of games in each phase and so on, uh, it's the second, second year running that we have this. It's the second year running that the Euroleague games are being played on Thursday and Friday nights instead of Wednesday Thursdays. Um, both of those developments, we think, were very positive last season. And so like anything that you change in the second year is really sort of when it starts to become stabilised. And, um, you know, we have some interesting new clubs in the competition. So FC Bayern Munich which is a brand that I think you know, pretty much anyone in, in, in world sport is familiar with, are playing in the Euroleague competition for the first time this season. So we're, we're quite excited about that. Um, you know, the, the, some of the top teams, some of the top contenders will, will, will be back, like every year, you know, fighting to, to, to win the title. Um, you know, we, we have uh, new integration between the Euroleague and the Euro Cup. So uh, after Christmas, after the first phase, you know, the, the, the teams that drop out of the Euroleague will join the Euro Cup, will join the second competition. So we think that will be a, an interesting excitement or, or addition for this new season and uh, generally speaking you know I think the, the goal for this season is that we continue to to work to grow the, the competition the sport in different markets you know primarily in Europe but also we're, we're, we're working to try and grow the sport grow the competition excuse me outside of Europe in a few key areas and there's a few things happening uh, especially around about now in, in the preseason, September October as well as around the final four that they're in along those lines 
and you know, I'm constantly working on different things like you know, like the UK market, like we started at the beginning talking about, and seeing you know if if again step by step, you know, things can progress and, and we can get um you know we can we can get things to be bigger, better, uh, higher quality, you know, day by day. What message would you have for UK fans um, about the state of basketball in this country and, and the potential for growth in the future? Uh, I think the message would be stay positive. In the past, you know, without naming names or, or pointing fingers, you know, th- there have been many people that either have been a bit too negative from the get-go or have got frustrated because, you know, when the years and decades go by, you know, it's, it's human nature that you get down and, and, and you wonder about different things so I think stay positive is, is very important um, um, add your grain of salt so everyone can help make change whether it's you know um, volunteering at their kids club with you know I remember when you spoke with Jan Hagen who was talking about you know parents helping drive the minibus or wash the kit or coach or you know do the, do the score or run the line in rugby you know every, every little helps so when, when, when people get involved, you know, maybe they don't have the knowledge or the skill set to help coach or to, you know, do the club's finances or uh, something else, but they can help because they can drive a minibus or they can help because they can, you know, learn how to keep the clock at, at a game. You know, every little helps. And so, you know, I, I think that's important. And like I said, you know, then the, the, the other point is, is you know, let's, let's, let's get things moving at, at a large scale, you know, meaning, like I said, some of the key decision makers as as a as a community, let's say the basketball community, need to come together and and push the right buttons to make sure that the sport does continue to grow uh, and does continue to fulfil that that potential that it has in the UK. You know, with with everyone pushing in, in the same in the direction, you don't have to agree with everything that someone else uh, believes with you know everything that someone else decides. But you know, you, you, you have to agree on, on the global vision, you have to agree on the on the on the principles and work in the same direction. And finally, Eurobasket this summer, will you be supporting Great Britain or Spain? Uh, Eurobasket this summer, I'll be supporting high level basketball. <laughs> Amazing. I think, I, I think Spain have a very good chance, you know, to be in the medals and uh, potentially, you know, win for the third time running. Um, you know, Madrigal Sol is probably the the best player at the moment going into the competition, and you know the, the guys on the team have played many years together, so they're, they're going to be tough to beat. And I think you know GB, you know, are going to have a, a a tough competition. So you know, everybody knows how changed the squad is from the last few years. You know, everybody knows that 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 that, that uh, Joe Pronti and his staff are, are new with the team. Um, you know, everybody knows that it's going to be a different summer for the team, but. Um, you know, d- despite that, I think you know they they uh, they've, they've they've had a, a good preparation period together. Uh, you know, results perhaps haven't been you know the the, the best, but you know it's, the result in a friendly game is not what's important. It's how the team is coming together, so that come next week when the competition begins, that you know they're in the best possible place to perform at the highest level. So you know, I think people should forget about the the the, the end result in individual games or, or their their overall record. And look more closely at how the team is and, and, and how gelled they are together. Ed, thank you so much for joining us. It's been amazing. I think uh, it's been revealing. We've learned so much, um, and uh, I hope that we'll hear, be hearing a lot more about you in the future. I hope that UK uh, fans and people that are listening and uh, watching Hoop Fix, you know, can can be looking east uh, a bit more often. So you know, it's not just the Euro League, it's not just the Euro Cup. It's it's 
European professional basketball. It's you know the Eurobasket next month. There's some there's some great basketball for basketball fans uh, to watch outside the UK and, and not only in the US. So you know that's uh, that's my my parting gift. <laughs> but thank you very much for your time, Sam. Thank you.